Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I'm the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this week's edition of Once Bitten. And joining us today is Parker Lewis. And we're going to talk about his last piece, Bitcoin is for one and all, which is an amazing piece. If you haven't read it, you don't have to go listen to it. Let Guy Swan do the heavy lifting for you. He's going to read it to you, Bitcoin Audible. Uh, because it's such an amazing podcast and a huge shield for Guy because I get so much of this content from him uh, in in this case and Breedlove's case I, I read and listen to both of them before inviting the guys on the show because I think trying to understand their mind and their message is key to to having a good conversation and trying to really get to the the, the crux of what they're trying to get across so Hope you liked this one with Parker. It was great fun, awesome time. <laughs> he gets triggered in the show. Not you, not that you'd ever know it, but if you if you want to hear a, a, a triggered Parker Lewis, then then stick around. Uh, I, I won't give any more spoilers away. I will give some shills. Adam Woodham's one. Thank you so much for putting this together. At Sir Badminton, that's uh, Hodler than Now. At Hodler than Now. Thanks for the music playing in the background here go check out at 21ism which he's doing a lot of hard work on for the sponsor of the show coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten go start stacking some sats thank you obi at obi for supporting the show at coinfloor for everything that uh, that you're doing and, and the business that you're building in the uk bitcoin only exchange and layering on top huge amounts of education and it's uh, yeah, it's just brilliant that you you put your trust in in the show and and supported me from such an early stage. And I also want to shout out at Play Shamery Scott Sibley. Thank you uh, for inventing the game that you invented. Uh, my family is getting a lot of fun out of the game. It's brilliant education. Uh, I wish you all the best with it. There will be a hidden code, or I'll tweet a code out for a free game of at Play Shamery that you can play with your friends and family and help uh, support Scott, spread the word in his mission to get Bitcoin education out to as many people as possible. I think that's all the shills. Uh, unless you want to go check out my book, that's Choose Life. You can find that on Amazon by myself. Daniel Prince. If you just do a search, you'll find it on your Amazon store. Let's get into the show with Parker. Thanks again, Parker, for coming on. I had a great time. I I hope you did too. And I hope the listeners are ready for this one because there's a few questions out of left field. And uh, it was uh, it was it was great fun having you on. Take care and thanks for listening, guys. Parker, thank you so much for coming back to the show to uh, to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. Loved your last piece as with all of your writing. It's brilliant. Uh, yeah, big thanks, man, for for all you're doing and uh, for spending the time and coming on podcasts like mine. 
Absolutely. Well, it's, it's good to see you both. And uh, I'm excited to be back and to, to talk about all things Bitcoin, including uh, the, the latest piece that I put out about a month ago. Cool. Well, Lauren, do you want to lead off with the first question? Yeah. Um, so I heard that you write articles and you love writing. And why do you love writing articles? Uh, why do I like writing articles? That's, that's a good question. Uh, that, that's a little bit easier than the... Uh, the curveball I got last time, which should be easy, but which was, um, what is a hedge fund? So, yeah, this of all the questions, this is like the test, the night before a test where you're worried about it. Whenever I get on to talk about Bitcoin, I don't really have to prepare because I'm just ready to go. But uh, for your questions, Lauren, now after that that first time, I'm always, this, this was the question I was uh, worried about the most. But uh, why do I like writing? I think that... Um, you know, one, I like Bitcoin, so writing about Bitcoin is very interesting. But um, one of the things that I recognized when I, I read a book by Safedina Moose, which is the Bitcoin Standard, um, I started handing out copies of the Bitcoin Standard because it helped me leverage my own time. Uh, because rather than me have to explain Bitcoin to people over and over again, I could just buy them the book, and then after that, they'd have a frame of reference to, to answer, you know, for me to, to answer any questions that they have. So it gave um, you know me something that I could leverage in terms of my own time, and it was something that I also learned a lot from. And so um, then I had things that I you know kind of had thought about that I thought that you know other people would benefit from, and that I you know helped helped me distill my own thoughts. So so whether something was a complicated subject, oftentimes I'd find myself describing it, but I. You know, I hadn't yet fully thought through the logical path myself. So I thought to myself, well, what better way to, to distill my own thoughts than to actually put them down on paper? And that before I start talking about those ideas, if I haven't gotten those ideas clearly kind of lined up and logically outlined and communicated on paper, then I won't be a, an effective communicator you know, when I'm speaking with people. So I did it as a combination to distill my own thoughts and to, to help kind of pay it forward and educate others that are interested in the space and leverage my own time. Because if I write, then thousands of people can come in and, and read and benefit from uh, the work that I've already done without me necessarily having to have that conversation on a one-to-one -one basis. So similar to how I think about uh, this podcast is that you know, people can come in and you know, listen to it as many times over and benefit. If you spend an hour, then people benefit maybe, you know, 2,000 hours or 3,000 hours. So it's also kind of a, an efficient use of time as well. You like that answer? Yes. So he, he writes so he can think better and distill his own thoughts. So perhaps you should write more? What do you think, Parker? Um, I'm writing every <laughs> kind of every day. Kind of every day. Yeah, writing to your friends in chat on Roblox yeah. isn't the kind of writing that... No, no. <laughs> On base camp, I started right. typing okay. again. <laughs> well, Parker, um, I do have a question coming out of left field for you. Uh, well, actually, my right field. My oldest daughter is making her her debut on on the podcast. <laughs> Hi. Uh, this is this is Caitlin, and um, out of the four kids, uh, she's in her mid teens, and she she chooses to go to school. The other three um, choose otherwise and uh, self directed education. But when I picked Caitlin up from school the other day, she, uh, well, why don't you tell the story? And then we can ask Parker the question. Okay. So um, I do an economics class and my teacher asked what inflation was. 
and none of the kids raised their hands so they had like no idea what it was um but I knew the answer so I raised my hand and well I gave my definition of what inflation is but I'm interested in knowing your definition like what to you what is in inflation yeah I think at the at the most basic level it is um, a general increase in price levels um, within an economy I think that when most people refer to inflation that um, you know to use a micro example it would be the price of gasoline at the gas pump going up over time or the price of homes going up or the price of food at the grocery store so you know kind of thinking about you know at a core economic level price levels increasing over time I think when you go you know another layer down and when you start to understand well, what causes inflation that that there's really two drivers um, of inflation and it's uh, you know, kind of on the one hand, uh, prices can rise because people are demanding more of a product and producers have the ability to pass through um, higher prices and to capture more profits or prices can increase as a function of, of more of the money that we use day to day increasing. And that those are those are two very different dynamics that cause inflation. One is very organic or organic that's that's caused by uh, preferences within an economy changing and shifting, and the other is caused by um, really a manipulation of the money that we're using to, to print more of it such that the money is actually declining in value and, and the price in monetary terms is increasing. Um, so that would just be kind of how, I would, how I'd lay it out in very basic terms. Okay, well, I basically said the same thing, but not in too much detail. <laughs> <laughs> But was your teacher happy with the answer? She was, yeah, she was shocked. Well, well, um, uh, you know, one, um, I'm honored that uh, that this is your debut and that I was here for it, and two, you know, I, I'm I'm glad that your teacher's asking the question, and, and and that you were prepared with the answer, and that all the other students are now sitting there thinking maybe I should be asking the same question as well. Yeah, well, I was shocked when she came out with that question, um, but yeah. Well, were you shocked in the sense that you, you're like, oh shit, I know the answer to this? Yeah, but this is what my dad goes on about all the time. <laughs> I listen all these to podcasts, this. you know, like, they did something good for me yeah. right now. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, now, the the thing I asked, I I I urged you to ask in the next in the next lesson, which I don't think you have. No, you're shaking your head. <laughs> was to to ask your teacher whether or not she thought inflation was a good thing. Yeah. Well, we haven't come back to that subject yet. Um, I think I think she, if I remember correctly, she she said that we'll go more into it um, later in the year. So if we do, then I I might ask that question. Well, do you want to be loaded with the? Well, why don't you ask Parker the question, and then you're going to be loaded with an answer. Okay. So, do you think inflation is good? I think that. Um, when price levels rise in an organic way because uh, people are changing their preferences for certain goods and services, that there's nothing inherently good or bad about prices changing. So prices could decline and there's nothing inherently good or bad about that and that prices could rise and there's nothing inherently good or bad about that if the, uh, the dynamic 
dynamic that is causing the change in price is a tra- change of preferences of individuals within the economy. If you guys like to go to concerts more and people can charge more for concerts, that, that, that there's nothing inherently good or bad about that. It's just allowing the free market to work. Conversely, prices increasing because more money is just being created uh, is inherently a bad thing because what it's effectively doing is distorting prices rather than let, letting you know you and I and every other person within the economy communicate in a more undistorted way through um, kind of just a free market where prices can uh, ebb and flow and rise and fall based on changes of preferences of those that make up an economy. So when it when it's just happening organically, there's no good or bad. When it's merely happening because um, a central bank is increasing the money supply and prices are g- all generally rising for that reason, uh, that is not a good thing. But it's it, it's it's not a good thing because it's a ba- basically um, creating distortion in the communication channel between you and I that are otherwise communicated through price signals. Okay. Got it? Yeah. Okay. Ready. Excellent. Well, thank you, Parker. This is yeah. uh, a, a nice short economics lesson of the <laughs> highest order. So, uh, girls, do you have any more questions? Absolutely. Or do you want to say... Uh, it, yeah. No? You want to say good night? Yeah. Okay. Well, say good night then. Good night. <laughs> thank you. Good night. Good night, Lauren. Good night, Caitlin. I guess you're probably not going to bed just yet. Uh, No, I've got homework to do. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Good luck. (laughs) Thanks. Bye. Is it Keynesian economic theory? Is your homework Keynesian economic theory? Oh, definitely not. Good. (laughs) Thanks, Parkett. Which leads us perfectly into your last piece, really, about... uh, distorting the signals within our economy uh, and where we're at today and it's in your in your writing you you outline some you know startling statistics which um i don't know if you want to touch on those like the amount of americans that have zero savings the amount of americans that have less than $1000 worth of savings the amount of money like the percentage of money that is in circulation via printing since 2008. These are just, these are unbelievable statistics. Would you mind like uh, just explaining to the listeners what you found? Yeah, I think that, you know, maybe we can break them down and talk about the first and then kind of in the lead into the second. But uh, I think that there's there's a, a general consensus, first off, that that if for anybody paying attention, that they're recognizing that there's some structural problem with the economy and they can't exactly put their finger on what it is that is the, pro- the core problem. And realistically, um, we'll talk about kind of my perspective of what I believe the foundation of that problem is, but that, that it's a confluence and combination of many things, you know, essentially compounding on each other, but that, that most people recognize that, something structurally is wrong with the economy and that is resulting in uh, extreme levels of inequality and um, and it's leaving people kind of you know basically in a position where the economy is not working for you know many if not most people and one of the statistics that that i often point to that i included in my last piece bitcoin is one for all 
is the, the statistic that shows that approximately 50% of people in the United States have practically zero um, savings in a monetary form. And that um, when, when I think about kind of economics and a well-functioning economy, which is a very difficult thing to define, it is generally one that is that is finding balance. Um, that the balance is critical to a um, to a functioning economy, and that uh, a, a world in which fifty percent of participants don't have any savings um, is a, is a is that sign that that there is something structurally broken. And that my my perspective, which we can dive into, is that that world that that the world that exists where practically fifty percent of people don't have any form of savings only exist and can only be maintained because through a function of a central bank imbalance is actually being sustained by that forward action. So that, it, that, that, that those two things are related, that the central bank action and coordination is actually allowing imbalance to be sustained. And, and one of the ways that, that we kind of describe or see where that imbalance is being sustained is kind of wealth aggregating at the top and many people, not just at the bottom, but, but the lower half, um, are practically falling out to a point where they don't have any savings. Yeah, it's it's shocking. And I have a sneaky feeling that it's not just the US. And I know you've quoted the US in, in that, but I, I, I mean, I'm guessing it's global problem. Yeah, I would, I would um, yeah. No, I'm not just guessing, like, like it exists that way for a reason. Um, and that, it, that it's not it's not something that is necessarily um, as extreme in all places um, and it's but but it is something that by and large practically in every economy that um, you know is fueled by central banking or that is is fueled in a dollar system uh, is that way and and you know practic- practically speaking every economy is in the world is influenced by the economy of the United States. Um, and so when the when the Fed takes actions to m- manipulate the economic structure of the United States, and, and I don't say manipulate in a, in a pejorative way, it is what they're doing. They're increasing the money supply to try to achieve some end, and I believe that they, they don't um, come close to understanding the unintended consequences of their actions. But when they're doing that, they're effectively – impacting the rest of the world because the dollar is the global funding currency and there's far more dollar denominated uh, cross-border credit by an order of magnitude than any other currency and there's the petrodollar and the u.s economy is the largest in the world so um, as goes the fed and as goes the fed's policy it has a way of trickling through um, again not a hundred percent of the rest of the world but but directionally practically every other economy in, in the world and I think that's a really critically misunderstood point that when, you know, people in the UK or if they're in France, Spain, anywhere in Europe or even far away in Australia and New Zealand, China, Singapore, Hong Kong, wherever, it doesn't matter. When, when they see like the, the news that, oh, the Federal Reserve just printed $3 trillion, they don't, I don't think any of us are like, well, none of us are taught any of this stuff for sure. And none of us can really understand that does affect our local economy. Not not immediately, but it will do and it's coming. Could you just kind of help people understand that might be sitting there thinking, okay, well, whatever, they've printed $3 trillion or, you know, pick a number out of the sky. 
but that doesn't affect us because I'm sitting over here in this different country. So really, I, I, I look at it from two different perspectives. One, that you know, there's, there's the, what the Fed does and how it, and how it flows through to uh, other markets. But then on the second hand, the Fed has its counterparts that are the ECB and the BOJ and the PBOC and the Bank of England. Um, and if the Fed is taking some action, again, not necessarily at the precise time, but it is often the case that central banks are taking these actions in unison because there is kind of a global trend that's happening that, that you know, in their world um, dictates it or makes it kind of a, you know, seemingly a, a necessity to, to print more money. Um, and so, you know, um, again, when the Fed takes actions, yeah, the, B, the Bank of England is not necessarily taking the same actions, but over time they're taking very similar actions. So whether you know you see the Fed as a headline, you know, also know that there is some central bank somewhere in your local economy do, taking some very similar action. Um, secondarily, because the Federal Reserve and because the dollar system is the largest in the world, because the U.S. economy is the largest in the world, there's you know, th- you know, I often find it most helpful. To, to talk in micro examples because people will understand rather than a, you know some macro kind of uh, principle thinking about a multinational corporation right so um, if you're a company like Apple and you're you know, designing phones in the United States and you're manufacturing those phones in China and then you're selling those phones in Europe, well, when, when dollar, the dollar supply changes and, and the dollar interest rate changes, then Apple's cost of capital changes and it's affecting their capital allocation decisions and the cost of their phones. Same as if the PBOC is doing something and changing conditions in China and that's impacting labor costs for manufacturing, then it's ultimately flowing through to those local economies you know, in Europe because they're selling phones in Europe. Um, and, and, and then... More indirectly, because so many companies, so like you know, I don't know what the statistic is today, but when I looked at, you know, but it'll be helpful for an order of magnitude. Ten, like three years ago, the the cross border dollar denominated credit was ten trillion dollars. The next largest um, cross border funding market or funding currency is a euro, and it was about one trillion, and then and then the yen was about two hundred billion. So uh, the U.S. And, and one of the ways to think about this is the U.S., you know, there may be a company in Europe and they've borrowed dollars such that when the Fed starts to, to tighten financial conditions and actually reduce money out of, the, out of the financial markets, the dollar interest rates are rising. The ability to get dollars, dollar conditions generally tighten. So that company is now kind of you know, having some marginal um, tightening of financial conditions and likely slowing of, of their business, of their dollar-based business. And, you know, m- many companies are multinational and many companies have dollar-denominated debt. Many, many U.S. companies have euro-denominated debt. Apple has euro-denominated debt. So when the ECB takes actions that, that are impacting the European economy, U.S. companies can be impacted as well. It goes, it goes both ways. And so it's like it's thinking about multinational corporations. So, you know, U.S. companies having exposure to, to, to trade and, and selling things through to European markets and vice versa. That when any any one central bank takes actions, because the world is so connected, it affects other other markets. 
Um, the U.S. and the Fed happen to be the largest. The U.S. economy happens to be the largest. So therefore, its actions um, trickle down and impact other um, other economies more so than than you know the other way around. Um, and and you know what I mentioned on the top is just that then there's also the ECB and the Bank of England that are taking similar type actions. So um, the, the the same parallels are happening. It's not just the Fed. Fair to say, Bitcoin fixes this. Yeah, I think so. Like, I think, you know, that, um, you know, when you think about not only all the resources that go into, you know, managing all these various different currencies, but ultimately recognizing that what that represents, and I think it's perfect, you know, Caitlin's question at the top, you know, is a good question. It's like, is inflation good? It's like, well, depends on what is causing it. Um, and that, that if a central bank really on either side, if they're if they're changing the money supply, which is their entire reason for existing effectively, all they are doing from a fundamental level is distorting global pricing mechanisms everywhere. Um, they're making it more difficult for you and I or anyone within an economy to cooperate and communicate through price signals and through whatever it may be that our businesses are and what we're selling in the market. Um, and and so when we are effectively re- removing the ability of a central bank or any party to change the money supply, we're effectively taking out the, the single greatest distortion in the market that allows us uh, or that, that presents the biggest challenge in everybody communicating with the most clear signal. So I think that you know, the biggest problem, and then what I talk about in, my, in, in the piece is that not only are they distorting price signals and, and distorting information that's being communicated throughout the economy, and I, I consider it to be they're basically sending false signals or it's like everybody's looking around at a cheat sheet, which are the, the then current prices or their expectation of changing prices. And it's like the cheat sheet was wrong. And they go into the test completely unprepared because they can change suddenly. Um, but that, that that it's not just a problem that the that price signals are distorting information, which they are. It, it's really that over time, what the Fed is doing with each episode, or the ECB or the Bank of England, they they are allowing imbalance to be sustained. You know. Practically every central bank, and I'm more familiar with the Fed, so you know, might speak a little bit loosely, but most every central bank has a price stability mm-hmm. mandate. And, and what you come to understand when you start to really, really appreciate what the pricing mechanism is and, and how fundamental it is to, to the coordination of economic activity, you realize that having a, that with a Fed or ECB or Bank of England having a price stability mandate what they're effectively doing is they're preventing prices from changing, and that's price manipulation. And when prices are changing, it's a signal that there is an imbalance in an economy, and the change in price is how an economy in its normal course would eliminate imbalance. And instead, through a function of the Fed, they're they're then distorting prices and allowing that imbalance to be sustained. And that at the core is what creates this massive disparity and, and great instability in the economic structure by, by time in and time again, 
allowing imbalance to be sustained and that the culmination of that of, of growing imbalance is an inherently fragile structure to the economic system that as soon as uh, there's an exogenous shock the whole thing starts to fall apart because imbalance has been sustained not over days but over decades yeah that was the the the, the part of your writing that really started sticking with me and Get me more pissed off, to be honest, um, when you were talking about the price stability mandate, um, because on, on a broad level, it, it's just basically legalized insider trading is, is the only way that I can really kind of sum it up in in simple terms. They can step in, manipulate the market whenever they want for their own benefit and for the benefit of those that are owning the assets, either you know, like real estate or stocks or bonds, where everybody else is just getting wiped out. And this has been going on for decades. Um, and if, you know, an insider trading example, if you were to call me up privately in two days' time and say, hey, Dan, you know, I, I've got inside information from a friend of mine that is working on the board at XYZ Company, I think you should probably get some shares. If I buy them shares and then I get audited, I'm going to jail, you're going to jail, and that guy's going to jail. It, it, it's, it, you know, like the game is rigged on such a grandiose scale that once you see it, and I know you've seen it clearer than anyone because you've been in our last episode, you were talking about how deep you went into the Fed minutes. Um, How do you feel anything other than pissed off? Yeah, I think that, um, I think that if I, if I, if I looked at, the aggregate of the situation, it is, uh, it is unnerving to an extent, and it's also one of those that, you know, like like you said, once you see it, it it's difficult to unsee. Um, and I do think of it as as very much a rigged game. Uh, now, it's interesting because the people that benefit the most are really those in the private sector that have figured out how the game is played. Um, and, that they, and, and practically speaking, they understand it better than the Fed or central bankers. Um, I, again, it's not something that I just choose to believe, but when I look at the, when I look at the scenario, I, I just, you know, I've listened to a lot of central bankers talk. I met people that work at central banks. I don't think that they sit around and think about how to screw over poor people and how to prop up rich people. Uh, now, maybe that's just my own, you know, wanting to be naive because it would, if, if this was, you know, from the central bank side, at least today, not necessarily how the thing started, but, you know, the Jay Powell's of the world or the Ben Bernanke's or the Janet Yellen's, uh, that, that, that those folks, they think that they're actually doing some good in the world, that, They've, they've learned a flawed set of economic principles, and that becomes their starting point. And that starting point is active managing the money supply is good, that it helps smooth out business cycles. And that if you if that is your core belief and you can't see the flaw in that, then you can't look in the mirror and recognize that, that you are actually a fundamental part of the problem, Right. Like you, it's not possible for you to see that because you're looking at everywhere for the problem except at yourself. Uh, because in your worldview and based on your 
conception of economic principles, you are delivering balance to the world, not creating imbalance. But I think when somebody looks at it with a clear kind of clear view and a fresh set of eyes, they say, okay, well, what's what's more likely here? That the Fed is helping to deliver balance or they're contributing to significant degrees of imbalance and inherently fra- fragile economic structure. If you look at that with a fresh set of eyes and, you know, it's like if we, if we sat Caitlin down and, you know, kind of had her read two different views of the world, which would make more sense, she'd, she'd probably more quickly recognize that the Fed creates imbalance than somebody who's 60 years old or 70 years old that's, that's held that view extremely strongly for, for decades. Um, they are the boiling frog. So, you know, it's, you know, but that, that rig game still exists. So what happens is there's people in the private sector and it's the banks, the large banks, the mega banks, maybe the, the large corporations that, that benefit from, you know, somebody lends Apple money at 2%, right? Like Apple's benefiting from the rig to game. But there's somebody at AppleSide who understands that that's the way the game's played. Berkshire Hathaway, you know, um, Warren Buffett, like, you know, he's a principal beneficiary of the rig game. Like, he's somebody that figured out how the game was played, and then he realized, oh, if I play this game, I'll win. Now, what is the consequence of that? You have an ent- you have a, a perverse incentive, and they not they might not even realize that it's perverse, right? But you have everybody now, or a lot of people, recognizing how this game is being played, and they play the rigged game. But ninety nine percent of people don't understand that the game is rigged. Or, or at least how it is. So they, they're playing an entirely different game. And and, and those people who, who see it, rather than just being able to figure out how to deliver value to other people, they're busy playing the right game and benefiting from it, right? In many ways, it's rational behavior if you're looking at it on an individual basis. Now, the benefit of Bitcoin is that it fundamentally changes the rules of the game. That old game, the rigged game, I think I wrote this in my last piece, it's like no one now it needs to figure out how to play the rigged game because that game's ending. If they just buy Bitcoin, they're opting in to a monetary system that eliminates the incentive structure that created the very circumstances where the game could become rigged, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It it makes sense. And um, I hope it makes sense to everybody listening as well. Uh, So if if we now go into... Uh, the Bitcoin part and how you believe that by everybody who does see this starts opting into Bitcoin, how that's going to uh, change their incentives, change prices within the market, change uh, mindsets, change uh, how businesses operate in the marketplace, um, all because of this this one magical, weird internet monetary system. Well, one way I would start off with is, you know, when I sat down to, to write my latest piece, which is Bitcoin's One for All, I was tr- I was trying to help uh, somebody understand why Bitcoin, with a fixed money supply, in competition with the polar opposite, which is a centralized monetary system with a, a form of money that doesn't have a fixed supply, but the, the government or the central bank can print a lot of why the former, why Bitcoin with a fixed money supply would um, deliver greater balance in an economy and why um, why the current system actually contributes to 
higher degrees of imbalance and unnatural degrees of imbalance that wouldn't exist if, if, if not for that system. And you know, it was a difficult subject to, to really sit down and, and you know, I don't I don't I honestly don't even know if I did an effective job at it. But you know, some people certainly seem to like it. But but when I when I kept coming back to the core principles of, of why that would be, there's a couple of things that I would start people out at. And it's that that the first thing is that inequality itself, that's not what we're talking about. That that unequal outcomes and balance are things that are, are two things that are consistent with each other. That, um, that, that that is not the goal that we are solving for. We aren't solving, at least in terms of economic equality, we, we don't want as a goal for, for everyone to be equal uh, because that's just that's, you know, a utopian view. And, and realistically, if we think about the economy day to day, that if we were living in a world where the money couldn't be manipulated, that what the, those that had more money than others um, would have delivered more value than everybody else, right? Like, and, and when I say you know, um, equality is not the goal. It's it's that if Steve Jobs creates the iPhone, um, should Steve Jobs have more money than than somebody that that has never delivered any value to anybody else and is a criminal? Of course not, right? So that that is a starting point. That when I talk about Bitcoin delivering greater balance, does not mean that somehow everybody is going to be equal because that's not the goal of, of, of an economy and that, that actually uh, equal outcomes isn't what gets everybody um, kind of at a more net positive plane. Um, so I want to be clear on that. But that two functional differences exist between kind of the legacy system and Bitcoin and why Bitcoin will deliver that greater balance where we won't have a system where 50% of people have no savings and the top 1% are living on mega yachts and flying private jets around. Um, now, we want more people to be, you know, rolling around on mega, you know, private jets and mega yachts. Uh, and the goal of the economy is to lift everybody up, and that's just not functionally what's happening today. Um, but but the, the core idea of why that is is that, um, that, that you have to think about what, a price system is and what a pricing mechanism is at a really fundamental level to, to really start to break this down. Um, and, and when I talk about um, a pricing mechanism, it's a form of money that individuals, uh, you know, kind of not necessarily agree. They don't sit around a table and all say, okay, we're going to use this for our money, but it's the form of money that, that um, people within an economy naturally converge on for objective reasons, that that becomes a pricing mechanism. And that when, a large group of people converge as people are converging on Bitcoin today in increasing fashion. That as more and more people converge on a single form of money to um, to store value and to intermediate a series of transactions, then what emerges from that convergence is a price system. And what a price system ultimately is, it's and, and stealing this, uh, but I I readily. Um, cited is you know a lot of writing from Hayek, both the use of knowledge as a society, and I'm like a broken record citing these guys, but the use of knowledge as a society and um, the pretense of knowledge. That what the price system is at a fundamental level is a communication system, and it's communicating only the only the information that people need to know and nothing more. So when you go to the you know gasoline pump and you see that a gallon of gas is. $1.86 in Texas, and you can see that it's 
you know, $4 in Florida, you learn something. Um, but each person in those local economies then says, okay, well, if I have to drive X miles a day, that's going to cost me Y and how much do I earn? So what else can I spend my money on? So, you know, they don't necessarily need to know how or where that gasoline came from. They just now know and they've been communicated to from a, a very complex supply chain as to what the good costs that they need to make. And they also know what, what it is they're making in terms of their own job or, or you know, kind of day-to-day activities. So, they, so they, they understand what that relative exchange ratio is and they help do all this economic calculation that informs kind of how they spend their time and, and allocate their own resources. So that is the function of the prices, and it's at its at its root at its root level, a, a highly complex communication system, and it's the greatest uh, it, it's it's the greatest way in which um, and to the largest extent to which information is distributed throughout the world. Like it's not Google, it's the price system, um, and that what a change in prices is a change in preferences within the economy, um, and that. It's actually uh, changing prices is actually what allows us to eliminate imbalance. So if people you know, used to um, say, I don't even know what a good example is off the top of my head, but say they used to like one type of car, like they liked the Pinto. And then we figured out that the Pinto was a really bad car and that there was a new car. Well, the price of the Pinto started to go down and then we never made Pintos again. Um, and we, we now have Chevy Tahoes and Ferraris and Porsches and whatever, you know, that the, 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 the price signal communicates what a producer should continue to buy or should, sorry, should continue to produce and, and what become unprofitable and, and go away and become obsolete. Um, like blocks, Blockbuster becoming obsolete and now we all use Netflix. Um, like that, that's a good, that's, that's the function of a price system working where we're, we're knowing how to allocate resources based on the changing preferences of people that make up an economy. So I, I lay that out as a preamble because this is where the two systems diverge um, really at their core. That what a central bank does through manipulating the money supply and through manipulating the cost of a dollar by, by increasing or decreasing the supply of it is they're, they're targeting a way to um, to cause prices to change the least. And I also probably overgeneralized the term price, but um, kind of in aggregate, you know, there is no true like price of anything. Prices are always changing, but, you know, directionally and over time, thinking about it as whether a car costs 50000 this year and $55,000 next year, or a house costs 300000 versus, you know, 325000 and 250000 um, what they're trying to do is target general price levels within the economy and preventing those um, from changing materially. And so when you think about that, that is a central bank effectively trying to maintain a status quo in opposition to a naturally and dynamically changing economy. And that what Bitcoin does to solve that is it basically says, nope, we're taking that ability away and we're, let, we're going to allow all of the market to, um, to naturally and very organically uh, adjust price levels and shift around resources to best meet the needs of people within an economy. And that in that world where there's a fixed money supply and there's no uh, distortion in the communication system, which the price mechanism is and the price system is, that 
naturally, like, yes, imbalances can always form, but because the price signals are the governor of the economy, they actually cause the, you know, if there's overinvestment in one segment of the market where somebody speculates and, and builds a bunch of, you know, high rises in downtown Austin and there's not demand for that, then the person that owns the risk is made for the investment. They don't get bailed out. They don't get, you know, basically real estate manipulated higher to sustain an imbalance that exists in the real estate market. In the free market with a fixed money supply, the, the imbalance immediately gets eliminated. And when you apply that and think about kind of, again, coming back to the root level is what would an economy look like if we weren't allowed to sustain imbalance and such that everybody can more reasonably um, rely on price signals that, that, that were more true, that you would actually live in a world with greater stability and greater balance. Um, and again, not equality, but living in a world where, you know, again, you, the, the, the function of, a, of an economy is to find balances and is to deliver all the goods and services that you know, are most valued by the, the market participants that, that make up an economy. And that what, what world exists where those needs are being met um, in a more effective way, whether or not price levels are being unmanipulated or price levels are being manipulated. And so the free flowing and the change of prices basically deliver balance and, and allow people to change their behavior in the most dynamic and reliable way to continually both satisfy their own needs and satisfy the needs of others. Yeah, and it's exactly what's going on right now. And, you know, to use an example of what, you know, a, a friends of mine in the UK, it took them just about a week to two weeks to list their house, sell their house for £100,000 over asking to another uh, family that were buying the house just purely to have as a second home with a 60% down and a 40% mortgage. Even though unemployment rates have gone through the roof, this is that th this behavior has been incentivized by these price mandates um, that, that, that the central banks have. I don't know, I can't speak for what's going on in the US. I, I, I had uh, Consilium Turgum on the other day that said the housing market was just on fire there. And this is all a distortion coming from just all of the wrong signals that are getting sent from, from the Fed. And in your piece, you talk about, I think it was 79% of all dollars in the system have been printed by the Fed since 2008. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that, that's, that's the number. So um, and what that is, is effectively looking at the, um, you know, again, source from the Fed and, and the Fed's, um, the, the, you know, numbers directly from the Fed, not something that I'm calculated. But if you look at the adjusted monetary base, and I always, I always look at the, the um, M0 or base money, which is really, you know, the, the true measure of a dollar or the Fed's best estimate for the dollars that exist. That the Fed has, you know, through the function of QE in um, 2008 and 9, and then what's happened more recently, um, they've printed, you know, on the order of magnitude of six trillion dollars, um, and that, you know, prior to that, um, again, I don't have the precise number off the top of my head, but it was somewhere between, uh, you know, a trillion to a trillion and a half dollars existing previously, and so the, you know, the way I relate it in the piece is. Think about a fixed money supply system like Bitcoin. 
if you want to get money so that you can then convert that, you know, say you work eight hours a day and you want to you, you want to be paid in a currency, you say, hey, pay me in Bitcoin. And then and then so you can turn around and buy things from other people that have delivered value. You know, that's 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 the value that that, that money delivers. You can turn one thing that you produce into many things that other people produce. Um, think about if 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 your if your primary or just for an illustrative reason purposes, think about if the only way that you could get that money was delivering value to somebody else. Because that's inherently what you're doing when you're working. You're identifying how it is that you can deliver value to somebody else within your economy and be paid in money in return for that. And then you take that money and do the same to somebody else. They produce value to you, and that's the way the economy works in a very circular way. Um, so what what does that economy look like, and what do the incentives look like if the primary, if not only, way to get money is for everybody in the economy constantly searching in ways to deliver more value to everybody around them? Right? They're, they're actually, you know, whether they're, they're acting in their own self-interest and whether they recognize it or not, they're actually um, helping others out to serve their own needs. Um, now, what does the economy look like if, in the current world, you can either get money by doing just that, or if overwhelmingly the amount of money that exists has been created and granted because the Fed just decided to create more of it? That, that which one of those two systems delivers greater balance and creates a economic incentive structure that results in the best aggregate outcomes and consistently over time. I think most common sense individuals will look and say, okay, the economy where someone in order to get paid money has to actually deliver value to, to someone else versus just having more money being deposited in their bank account by the Fed will recognize that they may not understand kind of the, the ramification, but they will understand that there's something very different between those two worlds and that, that one seems to make more structural sense than the other. And, you know, it comes back again to, to you know, having this discussion with Caitlin at the beginning of the show when, you know, I'm sure you've had this conversation with, with many people, many of your friends and family um, dismiss Bitcoin as being too difficult to understand. I would say it's completely opposite. I'd say it's just intuition. If you took a week... If you took three or four podcasts, one or two articles, I think you're done, right? I mean, I think you it, it really is so basic when, when you when you lay it out in, in these kind of terms. Whenever somebody says that Bitcoin is too complicated, it uh, it's a very clear signal to me that that person probably doesn't understand the dollar system or the euro system uh, because at the level that most anyone needs to understand Bitcoin, Bitcoin is far simpler than how the dollar system is, not just, you know, kind of functions at a high level, but how it's, you know, um, basically held together by, um, by, by very tenuous circumstances and how fragile that entire system is. Um, so I do think that, that Bitcoin is very simple. And the, and the way that I often simplify it for people is if you went, you know, it's an A-B test. And if you went to somebody and said, you can either be paid, you know, you're going to work eight hours today and you can either be paid in form of currency that has a fixed supply or you can be paid in a currency that your government's going to print more of, which one do you want? Uh, the individual is going to take A. Uh, now, the reality is most people don't know that 
Bitcoin has a fixed supply, even though kind of one of the, you know, the shelling point of Bitcoin is 21 million. More and more people are learning that every day, but most people don't yet know that. And if they do know it, they don't necessarily believe that it's credible. Um, separately, most people don't know that the Fed prints a lot of money uh, and they don't know how that transmits through the economy. Um, so even though that's the simplest form of the AP test, the other simplest form of the AB test is which one is holding its value versus which one's declining in value. And which one, which one of those two things do you want? Because like we were talking about before, price signals are communicating information, right? So while so many people will think that people rushing in and chasing the price of Bitcoin as it runs higher is irrational, it's also rational whether they recognize it or not. They're following a price signal. They're, they're, they're being led to the form of money that others are valuing. And... What is the consequence of that? Their other form of money purchases less. And most people also know that just kind of, you know, they may not see it day to day, but they know that the value of the dollar loses, you know, the average person knows that the value of the dollar is going to uh, lose its, you know, worth in real goods and services because that's how it's designed and people can see it in terms of the cost of their home, the car, food at the grocery store. They may not feel it day to day, but they feel it over years. Um, and they're trained that way. They're trained to know that the dollar loses value. Um, so they may not know exactly how that happens, but they know. And so one way or the other, they just very simply kind of, you know, out of self-preservation, go and buy the currency um, without even needing to know how it works. Uh, that is going to increase in value rather than decrease in value. So, um, and then I and then I also compare when people say that Bitcoin's too complicated. It's like you don't know how the telephone works or how that magical event happened, you know, when you picked up the phone and talked to somebody across the world or like you and I are sitting here talking to, um, you know, kind of on this video chat, like everybody uses this application without needing to know exactly how the technology works underneath. Uh, and various different people understand how this technology works uh, to make it happen, uh, just like the world of Bitcoin, that there will be big people who know how the underlying system works and are developing the technology to make it as seamless as using a Zoom call. Um, but that's you know, trading specialization. Not everybody needs to, to, to be a software developer or even to have you know, an economic understanding like of Bitcoin like I do um, to be able to use it functionally, to know that it's increasing in value over time, why we need money and what money can do for them because they, you know, by default, interact with money every single day to, 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 you know, transact with other people and buy goods and services. So it does become very intuitive. And I think over time that bar just becomes lower and lower. It becomes more and more obvious um, with each passing day. I love it, man. I think you just said FOMO is rational. I, you know, call me crazy, but I, you, I could make an argument that, FOMO is both rational and irrational at the same time. That, that they don't know why they're taking a rational action, but buying, in this case, buying the form of money that is going up in value is a very rational behavior. Um, and it just so happens that when when Bitcoin does go through big adoption waves, that there is FOMO and there there is there are people that are buying Bitcoin not knowing why. But, but and not appreciating that to some degree they are taking a rational behavior and following the right price signal. Um, but that, you know, people oftentimes uh, buy Bitcoin in, in waves and Bitcoin's adopted in waves 
and there's irrational buying, even though to an extent that all of it's rational, and then the same people irrationally sell. Uh, but as part of that process, more and more people figure out the true rationale um, and start to behave, you know, not just to some degree rationally for, for chasing FOMO, but, but start to understand why it was that there was the, the core demand that caused that price signal to be set in the first place. I love it. Absolutely love it. So anybody that's listening that um, feels a little bit down in the dumps that they might be FOMOing in uh, as number go up, um, don't worry, that's rational. Uh, you know, that, that's, uh, and welcome, welcome to the non-rigged game. Um, mate, let's talk about, like, at the time of recording right now, today we had publicly listed company number two come out of the woodwork and announce, uh, Square announced uh, 1% of their holdings, $50 million going into Bitcoin. I mean, there's a price signal that's going to start uh, making waves in the market. We already had MicroStrategy going in once and then almost doubling down uh, and going in with a, a total of $425 million. What if, what, I mean, what does this, how excited does this get you? Or are you pretty much... This was always going to happen. I expected this. Your usual calm self, rational self, or is this getting the goosebumps up? So, I mean, for me, I think that it's it's one of those things where it, it's both inevitable, um, where like, okay, of course, where I've got on Bitcoin and there's going to be more like it. Um, so, it, it's both inevitable, but then when it happens and, and when it seems to be happening on a on an accelerated basis, um, it's I like. I wouldn't understate the importance of either um, MicroStrategy making the decision that they did, and then and then Square following with a similar decision. Because um, it, you know, while those things may be inevitable, um, they also do you know kind of help accelerate progress. Um, and I think not just for kind of you know reasons of, of more mainstreaming Bitcoin, but the more mind share that is brought to Bitcoin, the more functional Bitcoin becomes. Um, and I think that in many ways, you know, large public companies beginning to buy Bitcoin, you know, gives us all a very loud signal that we can tell to all of our hater friends um, that we weren't crazy. So we all love it for that reason. Uh, but for, for another reason, I believe that, you know, it, it provides meaningful cover. Uh, you know, oftentimes people always rag on Bitcoin because it's going to be banned by the government. And even though I've written articles to, to explain to people why Bitcoin's not going to be banned, not to say that some foolish government is going to try to ban it uh, or restrict its use, but that the more wealthy individuals like Paul Tudor Jones, you know, public companies like MicroStrategy, like Square, you know, Jack Dorsey being an advocate of it, the more people that own it, the more you know, that that are powerful, the more difficult it is for 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 any government to take that action. Um, so, you know, just last week, probably you know, grabbing less of a headline, but uh, what uh, a, a you know, future U.S. senator from the state of Wyoming that is almost sure to to win her Senate seat, um, she's a Bitcoiner and you know is a big proponent of Bitcoin. So it's just seeing kind of these these different pockets emerge of people that you wouldn't have thought necessarily not to say you wouldn't have expected but you know kind of at, you know at this stage that it might still take some time with each one of those dominoes to fall um, it makes um, the 
the, the path um, just that much more easy, um, I think, in terms of um, getting the capital to continue to invest and make Bitcoin better um, and, and really, really recognizing that, that that is part of the process, right? Like infrastructure gets built as more people demand Bitcoin and adopt it. Um, and Square is an ex- a great example of a company that invested in the infrastructure and, and started selling the service before they bought Bitcoin themselves. But then as they do that, they send signals to other companies that, that will do that. And then as the price of Bitcoin rises, then, then more and more mind share is centered on Bitcoin. And then the, the net outcome of that is the tools that we all have our, at our disposal to use Bitcoin just continue to get better. That the, like the, the quality of companies, the quality of hardware wallets that exist today, the quality of on-ramps that exist today, and the numbers of choice today versus five years ago aren't, you know, don't compare. And that I expect that the next wave of that, when the micro-strategies and the squares of the world and those that are sitting in the corporate boardrooms to follow, uh, that you know, in five years from now when we're looking back, um, that, that will take another step function change in terms of uh, the infrastructure that exists around Bitcoin. Yeah, okay. I've got a, I've got a few questions around this. Um, let's go with how far away do you think we might be for the Fed to start owning U.S. stocks? Um, I, I think that, uh, let's say this, Technically, the Fed, I think, already owns stocks because they own ETFs that hold bonds. Um, but I would say that I think that we're still fairly far off from the Fed buying uh, like an ETF that holds you know, shares of comp- company equity directly. I, I think my, my understanding of the Fed, and I think it's like, I, I, again, I think I understand the Fed system better than the Fed understands the Fed system in terms of like what causes, like you know, what the cause and effects are. Um, the everything about the Fed system is dependent on the credit system, um, and I don't see buying company stocks as critical to that function. Um, I think that providing liquidity to those that have credit that can't pay it and to keeping the credit system propped up fundamentally is core to maintaining the system. Um, that, and that if they do that, then you know, they need to talk, target stock prices, but stock prices will be targeted through the credit system. And so what we've seen kind of over the course of the last 12 years was, you know, or, or really over the course of the last 40 years, like seeing the progression, right? Seeing that the Fed is, uh, you know, kind of they were buying treasuries to, you know, slowly over the course of the 80s, 90s to, to insert, you know, early 2000s to put more money in, in the system. Then they had to turbocharge that during the financial crisis, all as an effort to sustain an ever-growing and ever-unstable credit system. As part of that QE process, they then departed from just buying treasuries to, buying treasuries and buying mortgage-backed securities. So rather than just buying government bonds, they started directly allocating and creating new dollars to buy and ease credit conditions with, um, within the housing market and the, and the credit securities that help fund and create a world where you, know, you can lend money to somebody for 30 years at 2 to 3%, which is 
insane um, and wouldn't exist in a, in a free market economy. Um, but that now we see an extension of that where in this latest episode, they're not just buying treasuries and MBS or mortgage-backed securities, they're also buying you know, commercial mortgage-backed securities and they're also providing small business loans or participating in, in vehicles to, to, to lend money to, to small businesses. They're buying, they're backstopping uh, municipal bond money market funds, right? They're, they're having to go for, like the credit system is so effed that they're having to go and they're trying to get money into the hands of all those people who are massively dead so they can keep money flowing through the economy to create, to prevent the credit system from collapsing. Like whether they expressly admit that internally or not, that's 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 the tail wagging the dog. Uh, that you know, the prevention of the credit system collapsing. So then, what do we see and what do we hear them talking about? Is trying to figure out how to put money directly into people's bank accounts, um, and whether that's through the treasury or directly from the Fed, it only exists because the Fed's creating more dollars to do. So one way or the other, the Fed's in is creating the, the um, scenario in which that can happen. So I think that my expectation of what we see is just more of that. The credit system is a problem. The whole system is based on the credit system and they're going to do things to try to keep the credit system propped up. And I just don't see buying stocks directly as, um, as the most efficient way to do that. Now, the only reason that I could see them doing that is because they're trying to figure out how to get money to, to get certain places. So if they viewed it as, Okay, well, if I start buying like you know the stocks that are people in people's four hundred one ks, then maybe they'll you know that those dollars will find their way into to prop up the credit system. I think that they take more direct route. So it's you know I just have a high high degree of bias towards anything that they do will 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 support the credit system, and that buying stocks is actually not an effective way to actually get to the to the core uh, of what it is they're trying to solve for. Okay, cool, and. Another thing you said there, another uh, layer of protection, which I find really, really interesting. And we've got, what, Q3 coming around? Uh, we'll assume we have an earnings calls and uh, I expect, I'm sure you expect a few more companies to come out of the woodwork and declare that they are moving some of their treasury into into Bitcoin. These These layers of protection, the more and more companies that do this, the harder, it's going to become almost impossible for a government, well, we will keep it US-centric, for the US government or the Fed to ban or inhibit people from using Bitcoin if some of these companies are the cornerstone of the, the, the index that they're listed on. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, um, you know, my, my sense is that Again, at the core, if you have wealthy and powerful interests buying and owning Bitcoin, like those are the people that are the donor class, given people you know supporting the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. So, the more people that are in Congress that hold Bitcoin, the more people that are wealthy, like public companies that contribute to these campaigns, the more influence you have, and the more un unrealistic it is that that someone would take that forward action to try to ban Bitcoin. Um, now, I think that. There's another dynamic at play, and I've written about this, the, why they won't, is that if the Federal Reserve came out, you know, price of Bitcoin is $20,000, the Federal Reserve comes out. Now, even though they've said in the past that really it's not under their mandate to regulate Bitcoin, but say 
it's more so probably likely to come or, or would would be more appropriate to come from FinCEN or the Treasury or the counterparts in Europe uh, rather than the ECB to um, to try to put, put in a ban that that would create such a wildfire. It would be one of the biggest validations of Bitcoin and one of the clearest signals to all the market participants. Like just think about Steve Mnuchin, who is the Treasury Secretary, got on CNBC and said, you know, probably it was only like a year ago, it was like, I'm not going to be worrying about Bitcoin in five or six years. If he has to come out and say, you yeah, um, this is such a serious threat to the U.S. dollar that it's in the national security interest, which is all bullshit anyways, like, you know, thinking about like, people's right to, to choose what money they use could somehow be a threat to the United States national security, but won't put it past, you know, more people in government like Brad, someone like Brad Sherman from California to say something like that, that while that couldn't be further from the truth, if anybody was to take that stance that, that people actually paid attention to, and the Treasury Secretary of the United States, certainly someone more serious than, you know, uh, idiot congressman from California that would say you should ban Bitcoin, not picking one out in particular, but that that stance from, from someone at the highest level of the U.S. government that's in charge of managing the U.S. dollar system would send a signal to everybody in the world that Bitcoin was a real thing and that they should be paying attention, they should probably go buy Bitcoin. Um, and that, you know, in that world where they probably recognize that too, right, like this game theory, like if I'm sitting here and being able to identify that, they're certainly thinking it, right? Like, what happens if we do this? Oh, it's going to, we just said like a year ago, this was a joke and uh, it was too volatile to be a currency. We've all been saying that now we're going to look like idiots. Who's going to believe us ever again? And we have to maintain confidence in our system that more realistically, there are two things at play. That governments realize that they're going to need Bitcoin. They're going to need to be financed, Right. And governments tax things that are valuable, not the other way around. Like oftentimes people say the dollar has value because um, the government taxes them in dollars. And like, yes, it does create some marginal demand for dollars, but it's not why the dollar is valuable. Um, but the governments do tax things that are valuable. And they'll look at Bitcoin, they'll see that it's a currency that's functioning, they'll, they'll, they'll need to be, the government will need to be capitalized. And so they're more likely to figure out ways to start taxing and receiving Bitcoin. And then separately, they are, they're more likely to be, to you know, try to be, uh, I'd say, more coercive. They, they'll try to control the financial institutions that, um, that deal in Bitcoin, and they'll try to get their kind of hooks in or teeth in to be able to, um, be able to see all the financial activity that's happening in Bitcoin um, and try to restrict access through you know, increasing disclosures um, and, and try to control the institutions that are helping facilitate movements of Bitcoin. Like that, that seems like when you play out the game theory, it's not to say again, some some idiots in Congress are going to say we should ban Bitcoin. Like it's just inevitable. And in every other government, they're going to say it um, because it, it is a scary thing to, to, to understand that if you do exert a lot of power in the world through a national currency, what happens when you don't have that? Um, and that uncertainty, you know, I'd say not irrationally creates a lot of um, kind of concerns for people. Um, I think that the more they work through it and the more they understand the fundamentals of why somebody should freely be able to choose what form of money they can use, uh, why why that really sits at the core of an individual liberty. And, and ultimately, if you're thinking at a, at a government level, at 
you know, in the interest of national security, protecting individual liberties, that, that more people will come out inside and say, okay, well, um, if, if we're only going to cause this wildfire to spread, then maybe the best thing to do is to figure out how to, to um, exert more control where we can and to tax it where we can so we can actually have something to fin- finance our own operations. But to use your own analogy, I think what they're going to do is end up throwing gasoline on the fire, right? When they try right. and regulate it. Yes. Well, and I think that and this was before, this predated my time, but it's something I'm very, very aware of. And it, and it makes complete logical sense that there was a, a period of time back in 2000, um, I don't know what year it was specifically, was it 2011, 12, 13, somewhere in that time frame, uh, around the Silk Road, uh, where Chuck Schumer came out and said, like, you know, made a comment to the tune of, you know, we we got to ban Bitcoin or Bitcoins, you know, just for drug dealers. And just think about that. Everybody's sitting there is like, wait, what's Bitcoin? You know, and and Chuck Schumer, longtime senator from the state of New York, is sitting there talking about it. What's going to happen? Whether or not they understand, they're just going to Google like, what is Bitcoin? And they're going to look at a price chart and they're going to be like, well, okay, what is this? So imagine that happening, but kind of government-wide and especially the United States government. You're like, okay, wait, so you're telling me that this thing is such a so successful, Bitcoin is so successful that it's actually threatening your status as a global reserve funding currency that you now think that you have to significantly restrict its use? That is a signal that I, you know, that, that fewer people can ignore. Just as when the Fed prints three trillion dollars in March, that single event woke up a lot of people and said, "Okay, I was the boiling frog, but now that just sent me a very loud signal that I need to be paying more attention." And when they get to the end of that road of paying attention, they're going to find their way at the trough of Bitcoin and 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 start drinking the water because it does provide an alternative that provides you know such a stark contrast that, um, that 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 it becomes inevitable so i do think that it will fuel the fire it is it's not to say that it won't happen uh, but that but i think that those that are that are pulling the strings within every government that they also recognize that and that their behavior will be dictated you know contemplating that. do you have a worry that we're all just stuck in this echo chamber i mean do, when you see news come out about bitcoin is there any news that comes out about Bitcoin that isn't bullish when you sit down and think about it for five minutes? Well, I, I think, yeah, I think there's things that come out where, you know, um, that, that give me pause. I think there, there's nothing, it's less of the fundamentals. I think like when I, when I see things that, you know, are on Twitter where people are arguing about changing names of things in the Bitcoin code base and, you know, people, you know, you know, I, I ultimately don't think that's a bad thing or that's something that's going to ultimately stand in the way of Bitcoin being, you know, kind of fulfilling whatever its destined path is. But there's certain things that happen. You're like, OK, like that, it's kind of annoying that that's happening. Um, but by and large, 99 percent of the time, I mean, you could turn that into a positive and say, OK, this thing is so big and so important and so large that it doesn't matter what, you know, even though you can see that this is a slippery slope. Um, doesn't matter because Bitcoin is too big that it will overcome all of that. Um, and and so I, I do think that by and large, practically, it's like, yes, we do live in an echo chamber. Echo chambers can be very good. Uh, it's also good to, to try to check biases at the same time and, and realize that 
you know, every 1%, or maybe, maybe it's a little bit more than 1%, but, you know, every, you know, $1,000 move in Bitcoin is, you know, $18 billion of value. And then it takes, like, things take, take time to get built. It takes time for liquidity to form. And, you know, there's, you know, we still live in a, in a world of uncertainty. And it's still a world where people, you know, need dollars and euros and yens. And, and, and those, those currencies are the primary way that economic activity is, is facilitated today. And so that people, you know, don't wake up and see that squares bought Bitcoin and get ahead of themselves and, you know, bet the farm, um, not because that the, not because Bitcoin won't be successful, but because, um, we live in a dynamic world and, and people can be hurt if they, you know, think that, that, that it's a get rich quick scheme. Um, and it's easy to think that things are inevitable and they can only go one direction, uh, you know, ad infinitum without having ebbs and flows that could catch people off sides. So, um, you know, in my view of it is, if it is practically everything is bullish, but you also have to, you know, consciously try to temper that, that, you know, realizing that this is a marathon, not a sprint, even though it may feel like a sprint from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> from week to week, there's so much, so much that happens. I mean, just this week alone, we, we've had the news of uh, an exchange being taken down, BitMEX, their founders, you know, arrest warrants out for, for three of them, one already in prison. Then Square going in like one percent, fifty million dollars. Like it's such a roller coaster. Uh, so how do you, I mean with with your foresight and the amount of work you've done with the history and learning about all of this, and the company you work at, Unchained? How are you guys? How do you prepare for the future? How do you prepare for? What you just talked about, you know, perhaps governments are going to come after the businesses that are providing services and, you know, more crackdowns, more regulations, forcing companies to uh, give up company, uh, excuse me, customer accounts and KYC and things like that. How do you guys like strategize around that? And you know, what kind of, because it changes every minute. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of, um, a lot of what we do is informed first and uh, foremost by our understanding of Bitcoin. Uh, kind of what not necessarily our vision for Bitcoin is of like how we want Bitcoin to evolve, but our own understanding of what Bitcoin is a, a, is as a tool and what its potential is, and it, and, and that it is inevitable, um, and that thinking about it as a, as a form of money, where are we at in kind of the the world of Bitcoin, and and thinking about that as saying, you know, if we were to simplify it down to the least common denominator, living in a world, I think based on my own perspective and most of those that, that, that work at Unchained, not speaking for everybody, certainly, but thinking that if 1% of people have Bitcoin today or have some material exposure to it, 99% of people will. And that, you know, there are two or three really core problems that exist and they are how people are going to, you know, if, if Bitcoin is going to be adopted as, a, as the global monetary standard, how are they going to secure it, right? Like for the long term and be comfortable with that. Because if, if somebody is saying they're constantly losing sleep at night, worrying that the Bitcoin is going to be stolen, it's going to be very difficult for more and more serious people to, to adopt Bitcoin. I believe it's inevitable, but it's dependent on those solutions. Separately, it's how do I buy Bitcoin easily um, or get it? And then, and then the, the third thing is, um, kind of thinking about uh, Bitcoin as a transactional currency, 
and saying, okay, how does this evolve? And, and, and focusing on the things that are most important based on um, kind of where we are in the adoption uh, cycle. And, and then, you know, being cognizant of what governments may do and how they may think about Bitcoin, being apprised of the regulations and always doing things in compliant ways, but thinking about our products first and saying, what do we as people that use Bitcoin, what do we need and what do we use and what is the right way that that, that we are interacting with Bitcoin, not the right way that everybody will, but but the way that, that we think is the best way to secure it. And that if we're going to be moving it around to buy and, and sell things in the future, like what are those applications look like? How how important are one, you know, kind of existing today versus another, like in terms of how we prioritize uh, and, and then how we build things. And then we think about, okay, what are the consequences of, uh, of legal regulatory compliance? It's basically starting with a first principle about like, okay, what is the best, you know, you have to think about all of those things as, you, as you're kind of both thinking about strategy and prioritizing a product roadmap, but ultimately saying, okay, if I was just trying to solve the problem of how am I going to secure my Bitcoin for the long term? Let's not at, at the first blush say, okay, if the government were to come in and say X, Y, and Z about Bitcoin in five years, is that the right way to secure Bitcoin? It's first principles, how do we do it? And then say, what is the consequence from, from you know, is this compliant? Is there a large enough market of people that will adopt this given kind of, you know, how it may fit into a, a, a legal and regulatory apparatus and then build products in that grain? That if we were, uh, if we were looking at regulation and simply building our products and prioritizing our roadmap based on you know, regulations that were formed 30 or 40 years ago, long before this new technology ever existed or could ever be contemplated, that we're ultimately, and we just built things to form uh, or to fit in a box that existed for the old world order, that's that you're, you're going to end up with um, products that don't actually um, solve the needs of the widest kind of segment of the population in the Bitcoin world. So it's, it's kind of constantly being cautious of those things, but really thinking about ourselves individually as people that use Bitcoin, thinking about our company as a company that deals with and uses Bitcoin, and then thinking about that, how that applies to people like ourselves as individuals and companies like ours um, to, to deliver products that you know, aren't just going to be like, you know, your bank was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but that is form fit for Bitcoin. And again, when I say form fit, it's not for, you know, we benefit from various different companies that take different approaches, but that, but, but recognizing that everybody benefits from a range of choice and from competition in the market and that um, there isn't one size fits all, but we, we basically think and build our product for the, for the people that are that are going to be holding Bitcoin for generations and decades and aren't thinking about it as a trading asset. They're thinking about it as I'm going to need this as a form of money for the next, you know, for, for the rest of my life and for my, my, you know, to, to, to pass down to my kids or my grandkids uh, and, and thinking based on, on those principles rather than I need financial exposure to Bitcoin. And, and then everything from the legal and regulatory side is, is certainly contemplated, but we, we don't kind of shoot that in at the beginning when we're, we're mapping out what the right technical solution is to solve a certain problem in the Bitcoin world. And what was the kind of response from you guys when you saw the Kraken news and Kraken becoming a bank? I'm sure you've been very, very closely following in it. it. probably wasn't too much of a surprise that they were successful. 
especially in Wisconsin, where you said the um, the, the the new uh, senator, the lady there, name escapes me. I apologize. Um, is going to become senator. Is this something that you would consider yourselves get, getting across to Wyoming or, or opening a, a an, an office there to try and gain these kind of statutes? It's something. It's certainly something that we're considering. Um, and I think it's certainly something that, that we pay attention to and impacts how we do business. So one of the one of the products that we offer is, um, in addition to offering um, Bitcoin custody services for people that are willing to secure their Bitcoin for the long term, we help people who have a, a meaningful amount of Bitcoin uh, borrow against that Bitcoin. And one of the you know, just using this as, a, as an example, um, one of the things that that the state of Wyoming did is they created. Um, an extreme, a very clear structure as to how to perf- uh, perfect security interests uh, when when pursuing lending activities, and we now are working on shifting over our security agreement such that it's um, such that it's controlled by Wyoming state law and figuring out how we need to because it basically establishes um, a precedent that is exactly how we have been historically viewing it based on. Uh, a, a reading of regulation that, while we were confident in our own kind of conclusions or views, kind of creates a more express regulatory certainty um, that we could benefit from. I think for different reasons, um, you know, crack in pursuing the banking license, I think that is you know potentially something that we um, pursue in the future. But we may you know choose to, to bank with somebody like Kraken, you know, or, you know, not to say that they're considering, you know, taking outside banking clients, but that as more, uh, I think the entity type is called an SPDI, a special purpose depository institution, that as more of those form that, that maybe we actually bank there and, and we don't necessarily need to be a bank, but that, but that we would have greater protection. And so I do think it's important. That's why I think it's, it's, um, I think that in the process, it would be to say, what, what services are we offering and that, that, that um, are in the greatest demand? And then think about where we may locate from a jurisdictional basis or how we may structure things from, uh, from a legal org perspective um, in certain, in, you know, in Wyoming or working with the state legislature in Texas to get them to enact very similar type structures to create regulatory certainty here. Um, because we are also kind of have a, have a strong pulse and paying attention. So it, it certainly is a dynamic interplay. It's just not where kind of the the inception of a product um, kind of arises from. We, we think about it from probably a more of a first principle basis and then try to like look at the landscape to understand what the regulatory compliance perspectives are. And it certainly informs the decision as to whether we pursue one, you know, kind of one path or another or one product versus another just in terms of prioritizing a roadmap, but um, it's not necessarily where something starts. It kind of basically informs along the process um, from from that inception point on. Yeah, it's fascinating to see, you know, Wisconsin taking the, the polar opposite approach to New York and how this could kick off game theory amongst the states uh, over in the U.S. And, um, you know, to your point, if... If Texas decide to to follow that suit, who's next? You know the the, dom- the dominoes are going to fall. I want to ask you a question about something that gets talked about a lot on Twitter, and where you whether you can kind of help us unblur the lines between you know what is Bitcoin and what are Bitcoin services and what is DeFi, which 
we're seeing a lot of companies come out of nowhere, definance that's being called and offering like loan possibilities and things like that. Could you kind of like help us fully understand what's going on and you know where where the kind of misunderstanding is kind of taking place between like what you'd see as a Bitcoin bank is that necessarily DeFi or is there so many bad actors on the other side of DeFi that you don't want to get kind of mired in in that kind of bad muddy field? Yeah, so I, I think um, first and foremost, DeFi is a trigger word for me. Um, I. Whenever I see it, I just, I don't even engage a shutdown. Like there was a time when I like, I, I came to understand it and, you know, I came away with the conclusion that um, it's just the latest, you know, there've been, there've been any number of marketing kind of things that people have latched on to that, that are nothing more than marketing stories. And that's what I consider this whole DeFi thing um, that, there are um, like delivering financial services in the sense that, that most people are used to is inherently a centralized activity. Um, now, you know, I, I think about my, our company on chain, we, we build things such that we eliminate single points of failure. So we don't think of ourselves as a decentralized platform. Like we like think about our custody solution where individuals hold their own private keys. So, you know, they come and they use our software and they use our application and there's something centralized about that. Now we take certain actions to create redundancies through open source applications that people could use so that our website itself um, and access to an account is not a single point of failure. But Unchain isn't a decentralized finance company. It's just building a financial services company. And in our in our you know, particular way and the way and for the customer segment that we're building for, we decided to build it a certain way based on the strengths of the Bitcoin protocol. And in that world, you don't have to have uh, one custodian holding all the keys, that individuals can hold keys and we can hold one and we can help kind of augment someone's security. Um, but I think when people you know, talk about the term DeFi, and I'll indulge you just this one time, um, because I, I do think that it, it's a waste of everybody's time, but in the interest of hopefully educating some people, that you know, we, we, we pursue lending activities, right? And we lend against Bitcoin. Um, lending, anybody who's lending, if they understand what's actually happening and they take it down to the root of a, um, of a, of a lending arrangement, it's a trust-based model inherently because something has to be enforced. And, and a lot of people are thinking about all these financial instruments and it's like, oh, I can automate these things and code is law and all this you know, BS, but in the real world, which is, is the world that we're trying to actually make better, like people building things and using money as a tool to communicate information and to deliver balance and, and, you know, make widgets and cars and fly fishing rods and football stadiums that, 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 like, if you want to lend to somebody to build a football stadium, you know, in London, right, that's trust-based. Like that, that stadium lives in the real world. If a condition doesn't get met, then you actually have to go enforce something in the real world. And, and you know, if the owner of that doesn't repay the debt, then the creditor becomes the owner, but you have to enforce your rights. Um, and that's actually productive lending. The world that we're talking about with DeFi is like, oh, I could uh, like own, you know, 
shitcoin A or, and I could trade it for shitcoin B and make shitcoin C interest. And maybe there's some smart contract that if you know something doesn't get triggered, then I there's a default and the lender gets repaid. Well, there's some oracle in that process. Um, and those coins and and when I and I had this discussion with somebody the other day, Bitcoin keys live somewhere. Um, and they live on somebody's server, and somebody has access rights to those, and they, they live on a server, even if there's certain rules that say under normal conditions X, Y, or Z happens, it's somebody's server, um, and it's not decentralized because of that. And, and, then, and, then on the, and then on the mechanism in terms of like how a contract's enforced, there is some oracle that says whether or not something happened or not, and there's somebody's server that's communicating information that you're trusting that person as an oracle to be responsible and that it can't be manipulated. But if the incentives become high enough such that it, it makes it worth it to manipulate it, they, li- they likely will be. So the, the short answer is, A, they're not, it's not decentralized. B, the activities that they're actually pursuing are inherently unproductive. So anybody kind of spending ounces of energy, they could be figuring out how to deliver value in the real world to somebody or work on Bitcoin, which is delivering value to somebody in the real world, you know, they're, they're, they're wasting t- their own time and they're wasting other people's time. And that, you know, one way that I think about Bitcoin is that it's actually, it is decentralizing finance because we're going from a centralized money supply to a decentralized money supply. And that's going to create a, a force where the money just continues to distribute and distribute and distribute such that more and more people hold it and fewer and fewer people uh, hold large amounts of it just naturally over time. That, that, that's kind of like a, uh, a, a natural and inevitable force that's playing out today and will continue to play out. And as, as more people hold the currency as, and as there are fewer large holders, that, that that architecture is decentralized. And when people can actually hold their own private keys rather than holding them in a bank, that they hold power in that world and that there are there will be fewer very large mega institutions that you know basically um, protect access to the spigot um, and so the, the architecture of Bitcoin is just inherently decentralizing the financial system but that's not DeFi that's just a decentralized monetary work doing its work um, and that that in that world we're probably going to see less financialization like we lived in a world practically speaking of my whole life um, or early where it accelerated where we where we went from a definancialized world to a very financialized world where like everybody came became consumed about what stocks and bonds they owned or what structured product they owned or what hedge fund they were allocating to and I think what we're going to find is that once people realize that that all of that behavior was was built on top of a monetary system that had a broken incentive structure, and once they get back to to having a form of money that has the um, a, a more fundamentally sound incentive structure, where that form of money is not designed to, to lose its value, then everyone's um, you know kind of general preponderance to financially engineer will decline. You know, radically, if not exponentially, and in that in that world, you know, yes, we're still going to have stocks, we're still going to have bonds. Somebody, you know, there's there's value in people that 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 have expertise in allocating capital, but that that function as a part of our economy won't be the lifeblood. It will just be one you know one part of the economy um, that's no bigger or larger or more important than than 
you know, many of the other more fundamental aspects of the economy. I got to tell you, you are the most calm, triggered person I think I've uh, ever met. <laughs> you, you didn't skip a beat. And yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things, I, 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 it's about time that I just need to mute the term completely because, you know, I've, I've become better about not uh, not lashing out, but I just, I see it and I just think that it's a, any, any, any time being drawn into that. It's like, it seems so obvious to me, but everyone else can figure it out on their own time. Well, I, I really appreciate you um, because, you know, it's, it's been something that I, I thought I saw immediately that it was just a complete and utter sham and a joke. And I thought it was going to go away a lot quicker than, I mean, it's still here. This is what's, this is what's like blowing my mind. Um, so it's great to get your your take on it uh, and back up my own thoughts. So really appreciate it. Yeah, uh, blockchain, not Bitcoin, was around for a long time, uh-huh. and utility tokens were around for a long time, and you know ICOs were the rage, and it's just this too shall pass, uh, you know, and, and yep. there will be a next thing, um, and it's just you know not getting hung up on it, and just staying laser focused on Bitcoin and the, and the productive things that are happening is far better use of time. Well said, here, here. And to quote Matt O'Dell in his his episode, he said, not only are we on the precipice of an almighty bull run, we're on the precipice of some almighty annoying shit. And that's DeFi right now. Right, that's DeFi today. And again, there's going to be a lot of Johnny-come-latelys that that get into Bitcoin and say, oh, what about this? You know, oh, we should do this. And it's one of those things, just kind of keeping your head down and, actually working and delivering product that the people that hold Bitcoin um, that they need and, and, and are using, that's kind of core to everything that it is that we're doing at Unchained. And I think, and I, and I, I think see the similar thing being done all throughout the industry. It's just, there's a lot of noise that sits on top of it. And uh, yeah, it, it, it comes with the territory. Well, I'm trying to, I was trying to condense this down to a meme and, and the, the best way I can get to it is uh, altcoins need influencers, Bitcoin, as educators, and you are one of those educators, um, along with uh, a select few others that have done so much with with the podcasts, and especially with the writing. And I want to ask you about: Is there a book coming, Parker? Because you're you're gradually, then suddenly, series surely must now. If you were just to staple them all together and put a nice cover on it, you could probably start selling those. What 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 are your thoughts? So we, I am working on, it's not anywhere close to being done, but I am working on p- packaging those articles for a book form, um, you know, kind of very early stages, had enough people ask um, and that people would find it helpful. So um, we are working on that. Uh, probably first it's going to be, you know, in an ebook form, but we'll probably get to the point where we can, you know, package them. I don't think it will be, I won't build it as a book and maybe in a book format, but, but more just kind of like keeping, keeping each essay intact and, and being a series of essays that, that people, um, you know, have to, you know, provide the context so that someone knows that it's not supposed to be read like a normal book, but that people can jump around and read, um, different series because I do want, um, you know, we may, we may get a copy editor to come in and clean up some of my, uh, my errors, but, um, I want the substance of it to, to remain the same and for that to be on record as, you know, on X date, this was this was put out in the world and that people find it valuable, right? Um, and so, yeah, I want to get into as many people's hands as possible. And the listeners are going to want to know when's the next piece. Are you working on anything or are you taking a rest? 
Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. It's I am I am working on another, or I'm working on the ideas. I, I, I spend a couple of weeks like thinking through the ideas in my head before I start writing. So I'm at that stage of the process. One of the one of the the, the ideas I'm thinking about is uh, describing Bitcoin definancialization. That idea that we were just talking about about how Bitcoin will cause um, the economy to definancialize and and the the you know. What, it's almost like whether or not we like it, I think that it will be a positive, uh, but that that's the natural way that this goes, that many people look at Bitcoin as a, as a technology and think that it's actually going to financialize things, and I think it will do the opposite. So the goal for that piece will be to, to break down really the fundamental economic reasons for, for why that will be the case. Um, so I haven't actually gotten pen to paper, but hopefully kind of get it out by the end of the month. That quickly, you, you'll be able to go from like finalizing your thoughts to, to banging that out by the end of the month. That's amazing. Yeah, it's usually a two week, two week. Right? It used to be like a week process, but now that I'm, you know, I've worked through a lot of material. Uh, it's also, you know, I don't want to write just to write either. Like, I, I feel like I want to write something that, that I feel like needs to be said or that I feel like I can add to some discourse or provide perspective that connects to people in ways that you know they they, they may not have um, kind of consumed some piece of content. So um, I don't want to just kind of force myself into writing because I've already I've written sixteen. I definitely, you know, there's more things to write about, so I'm not done yet. But um, kind of when I got started, it was I there was so much to write about that I could write pretty much every week. Now it takes some time to. Um, to, to dig into some of those more complex subjects that, that uh, aren't, aren't as obvious things to, to immediately jump into. Got to have some source of inspiration. So maybe maybe this DeFi conversation is enough to spur me into the, to the opposite realm. So we'll see. Do you ever think about in 100 years, 200 years time, there's going to be people discussing your work long after we're gone? They're going to be reading your um, articles... I, I think about it. Is that not, I don't think necessarily about like the Bitcoin community as a collective. I think about more of it as kind of this epoch in time, you know. And are you know, it's like one of the things that's again, it's not rational, but it's one of the things that I kind of try to check my own biases and I say like, are we really the people that get to be you know so lucky to to live this event um, and to be here and now? And that's nothing. Again, that's not based on that's not rational or being rational or being, you know, in any sort of way applying reason. It's just probability, you know, probabilistically, you know, are we the ones that get to, to be this lucky? And, and, and maybe that's so crazy that, you know, this all falls apart somehow. But but again, when, then when I try to you know, dig down into principles and logic and reason and kind of the way the world works and, and the way monetary mediums work and my understanding of how Bitcoin works from a technical perspective, everything comes back to, um, kind of this being an inevitable path, um, that it's such an important problem to solve and that it fundamentally works, that, that, that it will continue to work just because um, it matters so much to so many people. And so I do, I, I think more about, more about kind of, you know, not me individually, of like someone's gonna be reading gradually and suddenly, but that everybody that's kind of here and now and living this and, you know, kind of uh, either working on companies to um, deliver services, you know, not just on chain, but the swans of the world, the rivers of the world, squares of the world, CMEs of the world, um, you know, 
I'm sure are Trezor's, Ledger's, Colcars, like you know all those people that are that are working on products, um, and then and then the people that are working on podcasts like yourself, Marty, Matt, um, Stefan, John Vallis, um, you know Brady Swenson, you know all those people, you know people writing safe, you know people that I learn from like you know Pierre Richard, Michael Goldstein, that kind of all you know wherever it may be. Um, people that are are contributing to you know, delivering value to others in this very early stage. I think about more kind of you know in 200 years, people looking back and looking at this period of time um, and 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 recognizing that like you know um, a a small but growing number of people recognized kind of very early on. Um, and it's another thing that people oftentimes feel like late to Bitcoin. Uh, you know. When I joined Bitcoin, I felt late to Bitcoin, uh, but that we all recognize that we're 12 years into, you know, or 11 years into a, mon- a global monetization event. That in 200 years, 300 years, or 400 years, or 500 years, I think people will still be kind of looking back to this point in history as being significant. I don't think that you know, like individually, people will be um, necessarily picked out. But um, but yeah, I do I do think that it, you know, it's one of those things where like we we are to an extent in control of our own destiny, and more and more people. Uh, not not to say they have a calling, but because Bitcoin is so interesting as as a subject matter, how it works, what it will mean, that more and more people will just naturally contribute to that process. And I think that's what we're seeing kind of evolving constantly today. Yeah. There, there, there are so many more people coming to Bitcoin Twitter at the moment. I don't know whether you've noticed that. And there are so many of the people that have been there for a couple of years that are just coming out of the woodwork and... Uh, Coming out with memes or coming out with stories, articles, whatever—it's—it's it's crazy. It's really, um, you know, get ready for this next bull run. All right, I've just looked at the time, Parker. We've been talking for an hour and forty minutes, and uh, we didn't think uh, we would get past the hour and a half mark. <laughs> we said we said we'd top it out at ninety, so we, we blew we blew past that. But it was a—I certainly enjoyed the conversation and uh, appreciate you having me back on. Well, I. Do you remember how you answered the question before? If you had one red pill left to give to someone, who would you give it to and why? Well, at that time, I think I said uh, Jerome Powell. Um, yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's either him or Michael Jordan, probably. You know, one <laughs> of the two. I thought that, like, at first, I was like, well, man, if you could red pill the, you know, the guy that's playing on the opposite team that, you know that has the biggest impact, but uh, you know I felt like that was less fun. And Michael Jordan was like the you know icon of all icons when I was growing up. And um, you know if you could pay it forward, that uh, that'd be pretty fun too. Well, that's uh, that is definitely a great great answer and original. Not been uh, not been chosen to date. So all right. Well, next time you know I'm gonna I just gonna put them on my list. You know it's like I got Jerome Powell now. I got Michael Jordan. And then I'll come up with the third one the next time we come on, you know. Well, I'm looking forward to that next that next article, and that will give us, uh, you know, a, a, a base to jump off and to get into uh, some deeper conversations again. And you still got two more kids to meet, so you know, there, there's hey. plenty there's plenty of time. That, and, and look, you're good at throwing curveballs. I, you know, I honestly, I wasn't expecting the question from Warren last time. This time, I felt, you know. That she gave me a, a manageable question. I think she took it easy on me, and I appreciate that. So let her know. 
Um, and then and then when you brought in Caitlin too, I certainly I thought I thought I had passed my test, and I was like, oh no, uh, <laughs> got got one more. Don't know where this one's going. Um, but but yeah, let's let's get them all on there. Bring the bring the whole fam. I would tell, and I would tell them, I'll prime them beforehand. No trigger and Parker early. No DeFi questions out of left field <laughs> yeah. from from nine don't to fourteen year olds. What, don't ask me what DeFi is, Lauren. <laughs> you have to listen to this podcast. And go listen to somebody else. <laughs> Parker, where can people come and find you? Where can they read your work? And any last shout outs that you want to give before we sign off. Uh, they can find me. Uh, so I want to work at Unchained Capital. Um, we help people uh, you know, that have Bitcoin, secure Bitcoin for the long term and deliver financial services. So um, if you are in need of that and, and know of our multi-six solutions or have questions about it, um, you can reach out to us on our website, unchained-capital.com. Uh, you can find my writing on the blog too. Um, my series is called Graduate and Suddenly. And you can also you can sign up for for that newsletter um, and, and updates from us. And then you can also find me on Twitter. I'm uh, at Parker A. Lewis on Twitter, and I um, distribute and release all my comments and you know retweet my friends and things that I like on Twitter there too. So um, and my DMs are open, so people can re- reach out and, and contact me if, uh, if there's anything I can do. Excellent, man. Thank you for everything you have done. Thank you for all your writing. Thanks for coming on the show. Really look forward to the uh, the rest of your work, and uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to get to uh, to get to know you and to to get to spend this time with you, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Hey guys, thank you so much for sticking around. Thanks, Parker, again for coming on. I really look forward to the next piece of writing. And I look forward to having you back on the show. Like I said, you, you know, you've, you've got another two kids to face down their questions at some point. What a brilliant, brilliant interview. I really, really love this one. Thank you, everybody, as I said, for listening. If you've got any questions for Parker or if you want to carry on the conversation, he's always, always open. Uh, you know, just stick him straight on Twitter. I'd be happy to, you know, carry on the conversation with this as well. Uh, you know, <laughs> he he said the word DeFi triggered him. You, you you wouldn't know it. I'm telling you, when I was sitting here watching, he he he, he might have taken a deep breath, but that was about it. Not not the usual, not the usual reaction when when somebody gets properly triggered. You know what a uh, I'm astonished at his his depth of knowledge and his level of calmness and his ability to really think about the situation that he's faced with from first principles and reacting in, in such a, an eloquent manner is, is just brilliant. It's, it's so great to have somebody like Parker on, you know, on, on our side, one of us. And when people like this are in the space, and writing the way that he writes and getting his point across as as clearly as as he does you really you can be forgiven for thinking that you're living in a parallel universe and how does nobody else understand bitcoin why am i here 
who else is here? And you look around and you see people such as Parker and you think, damn, I'm in the right space. I'm in the right room after all. So it's brilliant to have these people on our side and coming out with, with this kind of education. But we need more and I know you're out there. You know I know that. So if you're listening and you're holding something back, come on, step up. Bring the noise, we're ready. And we, we, it will be embraced. Uh, you know, there's more and more evidence of this coming out and uh, it's really brilliant to see. And we are getting ready for a monumental rip higher. It's, it's inevitable as Parker would say, you know, you listen to us discuss the latest news square. Who's next? I mean, come on. Who's next? There's going to be more. There's going to be at least another three to five before Christmas. And if that's not putting a big smile on your face and got you opening your app and stacking some more sats, then I don't know what will. So I will leave it there. Thank you, everybody, as always, for listening. Been an incredible last handful of shows. Really appreciate some of the, the big names in the space coming on, but also love speaking to the lesser known people. Having Lucky on was, was brilliant and seeing a professional sportsman come on and talk about stacking sats and how it's changing his game and his teammates' game. If you've not heard that episode, go back, check it out. So all I'm going to have to say for now, thank you everybody for the banter on Twitter. <laughs> There's been some good stuff lately. I really like it. Especially when uh, I, I think I put out a tweet of just... I just blew through 4K listeners. <laughs> Some interesting, interesting uh, comments after that one. But, you know, I'll be more careful with my with my tweets in future. Uh, but I, it, it's all good fun, and I really love it. So it's it's great to interact. If you're sharing the podcast, I appreciate it. If you're retweeting, thank you so much. If you're commenting, even better. I usually post these on LinkedIn as well, so if you're uh, if you're on that platform, feel free to go find it, check it out, and spread the message over there because it seems pretty quiet. It seems to be a bit of a dust bowl compared to, to Bitcoin Twitter. We uh, we definitely need to start reaching as many more people as we can. I'll leave it at that. Except go stack some sats with CoinFloor.co.uk/bitten. Or if you are stateside across the pond, you know where to go. Swanbitcoin.com forward slash once bitten. Let's get this going. Thanks, everybody. Big love. Take care. Speak to you on the next show.